Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, from 1941 to 1945, a platoon of Anglo-American reporters and one or two Australians and Canadians were housed in Moscow's Metropole Hotel. They were there to report on the defense of the Soviet Union against the Nazi invasion, and many of them were not disposed to tell anything other than the most positive imaginable stories. Yet the regime of Joseph Stalin treated them with the greatest possible suspicion, keeping them safely under watchful eyes, carefully controlling what they could see and hear. Nevertheless, even in the wilderness of mirrors that was Stalinist Russia, truth had a way of breaking in. While some of the women translators who assisted the reporters were spies, artfully delivering disinformation through the reporters to their Western audiences, others were secret dissidents who took the opportunity to whisper the secrets of everyday Soviet life. Some of the reporters radically reversed the views which they brought with them to the Metropole, while others, seemingly less ideological at the start, sunk into a comfortable moral and intellectual torpor. The Metropole as the stage and the reporters who crossed it are the subject of Alan Phillips' new book, Red Hotel, Moscow, 1941, The Metropole Hotel, and the Untold Story of Stalin's Propaganda War. Alan Phillips was Moscow correspondent for Reuters and the Daily Telegraph, has been foreign editor of the Telegraph, and editor of the journal of Chatham House, The World Today. Alan Phillips, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me, Al. So, as I say, this is an incredible stage, an incredible, in an incredible ensemble cast. But I want to begin with, um, let's just call her Nadia at the beginning. She's a young Bolshevik activist and uh, a young Jewish girl in Odessa, is it? Uh, yes, let's start. Um, of course, uh, she was born uh, in a small town, a shtetl in uh, what is now Ukraine. Uh, she wasn't called Nadia when she was born. She was Esther Friedkant, um, uh, a Jewish first name and a recognizably Jewish second name. Um, uh, she was a, a very advanced girl. I think the first girl in her, her family uh, to go to a, a modern school. Um, and um, when the revolutions of 1917 happened, which involved the, uh, uh, the emancipation uh, of the Jewish peoples of the Russian Empire, she seized the opportunities with both hands. The family moved to Odessa. Um, that was, I think, uh, the third or fourth largest city in the Russian Empire at the time, uh, a great cosmopolitan city uh, and a thriving port, uh, which, of course, we hear about uh, these days. And um, she became a, a sort of, uh, well, a, a schoolgirl revolutionary, really. Uh, she doesn't seem to have spent much time at school, and she joined uh, a bunch of, uh, of students and, uh, uh, and schoolgirls uh, uh, who were revolutionary socialists. She never saw herself as a Bolshevik, actually. She never joined the party, but she would happily call herself a revolutionary socialist. Uh, and... Um, uh, even in in her youth, uh, she got involved involved with uh, some more serious actors, including uh, one Alex Ulanovsky, uh, also uh, uh, a young Jewish man who'd been abroad, ex in exile. 
he came back uh, to fight uh, for the downfall of the of the Tsar, uh, the old imperial old imperial regime, and uh, he was in Odessa too, and. Um, uh, the the uh, young students were with him at a time, and they were all arrested by the police. And uh, as they were in the police station, Alex looked around and said he had a Mauser pistol on him. Uh, and he said, "Well, uh, uh, one of you, one of you women, can you hide this pistol um, because the uh, police won't search you?" And of course, Nadia was the first to raise her hand and come forward. She was wearing a green polka dot dress. And he looked up and down and said, step away, miss, where would you hide it? But uh, she was not put off. Uh, she became his uh, comrade, comrade in arms. Um, they took over uh, Odessa for the Reds. Uh, she became in charge of uh, um, uh, confiscating excess property from the bourgeoisie, which meant that uh, uh, the rich were only allowed to have uh, one jacket, one pair of shoes. The rest uh, were taken away and put in a warehouse and given, given to the poor. Uh, and she stayed uh, with Alex uh, throughout, her, throughout her life um, and uh, eventually in, uh, engaged in, a, um, um, in an international um, spying can I start that again? And she, yeah. she, she stayed with Alex for the rest for the rest of for the rest of her life. So, let's go to the stage. Having set up one of the principal characters, let's go to the stage of the Metropole Hotel. Um, your story begins in 1941, but it's had a, a, a much longer and an important existence. Could you describe that? It's uh, it, it, it seems to be key to the life of uh, communist Moscow. Um, yes, uh, it's keen to, uh, keen to be at the center of Moscow life even before that. It was built in 1905. At that time, of course, Moscow was a provincial city. Peter the Great had moved the capital to the, uh, to the uh, Baltic Sea, to Petersburg, but that... That meant that um, Moscow was a freer place and it was full of wealthy merchants, sugar barons, uh, who had uh, very progressive ideas in politics and very good taste uh, in, uh, in art, uh, great collectors of uh, Matisse and the, uh, and, uh, the, the Impressionists. Uh, and the, uh, the Metropole was their playground. Um, Foreign, foreign visitors were astonished at how much money was on display, how gallons of, of champagne were drunk. You could see uh, czarist officers uh, with their girlfriends from the Bolshoi Ballet, just the other side of the square, um, sometimes sitting in the little tables in the dining room, at other times in what they called the, on the mezzanine, the cabinet privé, where you could have a, uh, should we say, uh, a more a more private dinner with no with no one looking, um, and uh, so it continued until 1917, uh, and it uh, when uh, the Bolsheviks both uh, when the Bolsheviks took over, and um, Lenin decided to move the capital to Moscow, um, but there was nowhere for the uh, all the bureaucrats and the politicians to live. And there were no offices for them, so he com 
he um, took over the two big hotels, the National and the Metropole. And for some years, it lost its name and became the Second House of Soviets. Uh, there, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky and others, they all spoke. Uh, uh, they had office, offices there and they lived there. So it was both a billet for the Bolsheviks um, and, uh, and a place where meetings were held. Uh, it was certainly there where the decision was taken uh, to, uh, to massacre the family of the Tsar, Nikolai, his wife uh, and their daughters and their sick son. Definitely uh, that was taken there and I believe the telegram to, to Yekaterinburg ordering the massacre was sent from that place. Um, as life returned a bit, a bit to, to normal, um, the hotel found a, a new role which was a place where influential foreigners, uh, the people that Lenin liked to call useful idiots, could, uh, could stay. It had ensuite bathrooms uh, and be given uh, good, good, good food and the right sort of indoctrination. Uh, this was how it was in the, in the late 20s and the, and the 1930s. George Bernard Shaw, the Nobel Prize winning playwright, uh, uh, spent his uh, 70th birthday there. He'd come to Moscow to be uh, um, to be regaled uh, by everyone from Stalin to uh, all, all the intellectuals. Um, uh, and over the years, um, quite a clever uh, system had been arranged of guides who were given a very long education in how to influence foreigners and how to answer uh, their pesky questions. <coughs> uh, some of some extracts from these handbooks are still around. One of the one of the, a typical question which they were given the answer to was: um, Are there still infectious diseases in the Soviet Union? And the answer would be: As a result of our new social policy, policies, there are no infectious diseases in the Soviet Union. Now, of course. <laughs> That is completely ridiculous. People have been dying of typhus, typhus for a long time. Of, of course, um, public health had, had improved. Um, these, um, these answers seem very, very lame to our eyes, but it has to be remembered that there were huge numbers of intellectuals in Europe and America who, having seen the failure of capitalism after the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the mass unemployment, they were looking, they really needed to find some sort of a lantern of the future to a place where things, things were done more equably and it didn't have, didn't have boom, boom and bust. So um, uh, there, was a, there was a ready market for, for this kind of slightly cack-handed cack uh, uh, programming. And of course, the guides, uh, they were all expected to report to the secret police of the time it changed its name many times. At that time, it was the NKVD, uh, but more better known as the KGB, which it was in later years. Uh, they had to report to them. They wanted to know who the visitors had met, um, what their opinions were, and uh, what they thought of their time in the Soviet Union. So, um, so the uh, yes, the uh, the Metropole Hotel. It had a a uh, a permanent. Um, uh, number of residents, 
They were called old Bolsheviks, um, senior revolutionaries who had grace and favor apartments there. But mainly the, the guests were important foreigners who needed to be shown the best of the Soviet Union. Uh, um, and then suddenly, in June 1941, uh, the entire journalistic world wants to descend upon Moscow um, because it's become surprisingly to most, I guess, probably maybe especially to Stalin, uh, the epicenter of world conflict uh, with, the, yes. the, with the Nazi invasion of, uh, of Russia. Um, we should yeah. point out, I mean, this is, this is breaking their, the, the pact, which has allowed Hitler to invade Poland and then France uh, without having to worry about uh, what the Soviet Union will do. Uh, the Hitler uh, breaks the pact, invades. Yeah. And um, could you basically describe briefly the shock in Moscow, but also the shock in London? Because that's kind of the, the two go together a little bit. Yes. Uh, well, you're absolutely right, Al. Um, the the course of the war seemed uh, changed uh, on June the 22nd, 1941, when um, Hitler invaded. Of course, for the first year and a half of the war in Europe, uh, the Soviet Union, Stalin was a non-belligerent ally of Hitler. Uh, he gained a lot of territory, including half of, ter half of Poland. Uh, Hitler and Stalin agreed that Poland should be wiped off the map. And um, uh, the Soviet Union's role in this was to, was to supply uh, oil and food and various minerals to the German war effort. So the, um, the food that um, the Wehrmacht ate on its way to, uh, to uh, crushing France came from Russia. And uh, the fuel to bomb London in the Blitz also came from Russia. Anyway, as this was a gangster pact, it was inevitable that one side would break it. It was a surprise to Stalin. He knew there would be war eventually. He was hoping, hoping against hope, that he'd have a couple more years, maybe three years, uh, to build up his arms. So he had refused to prepare the army or refused to even listen to all the warnings that Hitler was about to attack because he just didn't want, to, didn't want to believe it. So the first weeks, the first months of, uh, of that summer were a complete disaster. Hundreds, even thousands of planes were, um, were destroyed on the ground. They were not camouflaged, they were not, they were not hidden. Um, so um, uh, Churchill uh, found himself suddenly having been for years uh, an anti-communist, a Bolshe beta in the, in, the, I, in the lexicon of the time, uh, he found himself an ally, ally of Stalin and of course Stalin had to accept uh, the help of the, um, help to, of the, of the capitalists. Um, so um, there was, um, the Soviet Union became the ally of, of, of Britain uh, and the United States, of course, hadn't entered the war formally uh, until the end of that year. Uh, 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 Churchill agreed um, to start sending uh, fighter aircraft, particularly uh, Hurricanes and um, uh, American fighters, uh, raw materials uh, uh, through along the Arctic sea route 
to help the Red, Red, Arm, Red Army effort. But um, Churchill had another, another demand, which must have come for, as a surprise to Stalin anyway. Churchill said, if the British people are going to be giving their, their much needed aircraft to the Red Army, um, they need to know, they need to have some, some independent, some objective reports from, from the front. So, you know, could you, could you accept some, uh, some Anglo-American correspondence in Moscow, uh, take them to the front and they can report back on the heroic fight of the Red Army against the Wehrmacht. And um, that will give some heart, that will give some heart to the alliance. Of course, uh, Churchill himself uh, in his youth had been a very effective war correspondent, uh, particularly in South Africa in the Boer War. Um, he'd been uh, arrested, uh, imprisoned, he'd escaped, he'd traveled on uh, freight trains, hidden in a mine, uh, and um, uh, aroused uh, great patriotic fervor with his, with, his, with his dispatches. I think it was the high point of his life. And he said afterwards that existence is never so sweet as when it is at hazard. So he imagined foreign correspondents coming up and uh, being, on, being on the front line and, uh, 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 and uh, reporting back brilliant pieces. Of course, Stalin had managed to more or less get rid of the foreign press during the 30s, but he said he couldn't say no, but um, he knew what to do with them, should we say. Mm -hmm. So what to do a with collection them. of journalists and RAF personnel who are to show the Soviets how to use hurricanes uh, are cr are packed onto this ship. The the I I, I don't speak Welsh. Uh, the Lan Stefan Castle. I don't know. Lan Stefan. Yeah. Lan Stefan. Okay. Um, yeah. Indeed. Uh, the uh, which is it sounds like uh, to my mind hell for me will be having to be on the Jan Stefan castle for the rest of eternity on cruising <laughs> on and on and on. Um, could it, um, for one thing, it's like, is this like the first romance convoy? So there's an incredible danger from the German, uh, the Kriegsmarine uh, in Norway uh, and from U-boat attack and all the rest of it. But also you're the, the surroundings and the company are really abysmal. It, to my mind. Uh, yes, well, uh, of course, it was a luxury liner which was built for the uh, for the passage between Southampton and South Africa. So it was um, uh, it had uh, it was built. Uh, it was the sort of sinew of the British Empire, and it had signs all over it in Afrikaans. But it had been uh, um, turned. Well, turned into a troop ship, I, troop ship, I suppose. Um, there was not much, not much comfort, but it was quite, quite a grand ship. I mean, what was um, most extraordinary was the the range of people on it, and uh, the all the fears they had. Um, they certainly were legitimately worried that uh, German uh, torpedo aircraft would shoot them out of shoot them out of the sea. Uh, they were worried how uh, welcome they would be to to the Russians, uh, and they were worried that once they'd got to Murmansk, with the Germans uh, not many miles away, um, would, might uh, immediately attack them um, 
turn them all into prisoners of war or worse. Anyway, um, there were three there were three journalists on board who've uh, who've. Uh, who uh, have written their recollections. But about 500 uh, men, I think they were all men uh, from the RAF, who were setting up a wing of hurricane fighters to defend the northern ports, because obviously the Arctic, Arctic convoy route was going to be very important for the future. Um, uh, but um, the, uh, the woman who stood out was uh, a journalist called Charlotte Haldane, who was a card-carrying communist. She'd uh, devoted the latter 30s to supporting the Republican side in Spain. She'd uh, translated and accompanied Paul Robeson when he, uh, when he uh, visited the troops to, uh, to encourage them. Uh, and she'd managed to persuade a newspaper editor to send her as a correspondent uh, on the grounds that being a communist, um, she would get the first interview with Stalin. Of course, how little did she know? Of course, Stalin really didn't give interviews uh, to com communists or anybody, actually. Um, he went through the war um, like a sort of god, almost un unapproachable, unapproachable by the press. He never gave a press conference or anything like that. Maybe you could, if you were lucky, hear him pronounce a few toasts at a Kremlin banquet, but that's that's as close as close as you got to him. Anyway. And she's also, we should say, she's the, the wife of the brilliant statistical biologist J.B.S. Haldane, who is uh, probably the foremost, uh, uh, the foremost practical biologist of the first half of the 20th century in Britain, and um, quite a controversialist himself. They have a sort of ideal, the Communist Party wants them to have an ideal sort of public marriage, although by this point, 1941, they are estranged. That's right. They were estranged, but it was very important for the Communist Party to preserve the the image of them as the ideal ideal pr progressive progressive Power unit. Yeah. Um, uh, Charlotte had been um, uh, an air raid warden in London uh, during the Blitz, which meant um, uh, wearing a helmet and being out at night and seeing where the fires were. But very importantly, uh, it also involved ensuring that uh, those who died, uh, even if they were very poor, had a proper funeral, um, which was uh, quite important uh, when she when she came uh, when she uh, when she became a war correspondent in Russia. She annoyed just about everyone on the boat by being such such uh, a, uh, a communist. You couldn't you couldn't talk to her really when they when they finally. Uh, saw uh, a lighthouse, the first Russian lighthouse. Ah, she said, ah, Soviet Union, the lantern of the world. Um, she got up a lot of a lot of people's noses in that respect. She's, um, she was the kind of person at this stage in her life, maybe the rest, I don't know. Uh, she, you, you don't have a conversation with your, her. She has a harangue with you. Uh, she has a harangue. She, she harangues people. Yes. And she, she particularly liked to harangue um, with... Uh, someone who was an artist who was with the rather small press party. He was of Polish origin, Felix Topolski. He he, he used the name Topolski. Um, he was very fashionable, and uh, he was going because Churchill had understood or been told that there would be no foreign photographers allowed with the Red Army. 
uh, or indeed in Moscow. So he had the, he said, right, well, we'll send Topolsky and he can send his drawings uh, for for Picture Post, which was uh, probably the most uh, the most popular illustrated magazine. Um, well, uh, Charlotte lost no opportunity to harangue Topolsky because in her view, he represented uh, the worst of the sort of old bourgeois uh, uh, Polish, Polish elite. Uh, she, uh, she told him that there was going to be a new Poland, it was going to be com communist-led um, after Stalin had uh, driven, the, driven the Germans out and there wouldn't be any, any room for such, such people as, as, as Topolsky. Um, at one stage uh, they, almost, they almost came to blows or rather scratch, I mean um, Polish men were, were very gentlemanly, of course, at that time, but they had to be separated uh, by a, a, Czech, a Czech diplomat. Um, um, and she recalls this and said, yes, I probably was a bit of a prig at the time. I probably was a bit of a prig. Anyway, um, she um, had no doubt that um, uh, the Soviet Union was the, was the future of mankind. And then there's another curious character who was seemingly at the opposite end of the ideological spectrum on board, and that's Ralph Parker. Um, who was he and how did, if people, he was suspected of being a, a Nazi spy at one point, how in the world did he ever get on this, this cruise to the Soviet Union? Um, well, you asked who was Ralph Parker? Um, I think I've probably spent a couple of years trying to answer that question. Um, he was, he didn't fit into any very happy mold. Um, he had, uh, he had been the correspondent of the London Times in Czechoslovakia at the time when it was taken over by the Nazis. It was incorporated uh, as a protectorate of the Reich. Uh, he did quite well. Uh, he had a, a, an extremely capable Czech assistant, obviously no fan of the Nazis. And um, they sort of fled, they had to flee overnight when they were tipped off that she was going to be, uh, she was going to be arrested. Indeed, her best friend was arrested and uh, was uh, uh, not only arrested and, and sentenced, but actually um, beheaded uh, by the Germans. It was a terrible story. Anyway, they escaped. Um, and um, he did a little, uh, he went to uh, Yugoslavia and he put down his pen and started working um, for, uh, for British intelligence, keeping an eye on what the Italians were doing. This apparently was, this was not a bar to going back to work as a journalist anyway. And then um, he, he persuaded the Times to send him to Moscow. Um, uh, but um, but as he was preparing, he had a, a double bereavement. His beloved Czech wife died after um, uh, uh, a botched operation, and um, and their child uh, also died a couple of months later. So he was in a fairly a fairly weak state. Um, he had been he had been uh, accused, I think, incorrectly of. Um, working, working with the Nazis in in the Balkans. Um, one of 
the, the explanation for this is that he was not quite from the usual class who worked for British intelligence. Uh, he had gone to Cambridge, but that was because he was very bright, uh, a clever fellow. Um, but um, he didn't come from the landed gentry or the upper bourgeoisie. Um, his family were um, small merchants in Manchester. And I think he never quite fitted in and people always thought, hmm, who is this man? Anyway, he arrived in Moscow in a, a, very, del a very delicate state. And um, of course, the first thing a correspondent had to do when they got to the Metropole was to find a translator. Very few of them, almost none of them spoke Russian. Uh, were, it, was, it had been dangerous uh, uh, to, uh, to know foreign languages for quite some time in Russia, particularly in the 30s when, uh, foreign, when Stalin was uh, rounding up people as alleged foreign spies. Anyway, so everyone needed a translator and um, he found one uh, in, the, in, the, in the form of Valentina Scott. Uh, she had the name Scott because she had been married as a student to an American student who came to be educated at Moscow University, though the marriage didn't last. Um, um, she was a very effective um, uh, propagandist for the Kremlin and it was generally seen that he was under, under her thumb and became basically a Kremlin mouthpiece. Um, with my journalistic hat on, uh, the word honey trap comes to my mind. I'm not sure about that. She was, she was uh, a very efficient and very effective woman. And I think Ralph was probably, um, uh, was, was, losing his, well, was not, was not enamored with the, um, uh, the British ruling class. Uh, I think he was coming a man of the left and she certainly fitted in. Anyway, um, all the, the, the other journalists um, despised her and called her, a, what are they called her? They said a, she must be a colonel in the NKVD, the secret police. Mm. There was no proof of that. Um, um, Though so it made it made a good story, but um, I know someone who went to see her after Ralph died, and she wasn't living the life of a a, a retired colonel in the NKVD. She'd right. been put into one of those tiny tiny apartments on the edge of Moscow in a tall a tall tower, uh, and had practically nothing, nothing in the fridge to eat. She was certainly, she seemed to be quite poor and forgotten. So there we go. Anyway, um, but um, she and Ralph were a powerful, a powerful duo. He worked for the Times throughout the war. And when the New York Times didn't have a staff correspondent there, he would file for them. Though uh, his for a very strongly pro-Kremlin dispatches um, didn't go down so well and they got rid of him in 43. Hmm. Well, the, yeah, it's interesting that the correspondents thought that she, that, that, uh, that, that she was a NKVD colonel, given that all of their translators were in one way or the other reporting back to the NKVD. I mean, <laughs> surely they realized this. 
Oh, yes, they knew that uh, ev every week all their translators had to go and tell something to the, to the NKVD, um, what, you know, who had the correspondent met, uh, what were his thoughts, almost all of them were, 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 were male, what were his thoughts, um, what, um, uh, you know, were they really, were they really journalists? I mean, it was generally assumed that anyone who came as a journalist would have greater or lesser intelligence, intelligence connections. Um, I mean, I think uh, uh, she got it in the neck because, uh, because I, well, they were, they were, they were, they were all women. Uh, it's interesting to read the Foreign Office files uh, on this, on this matter. She is generally uh, accused of uh, having um, got um, Ralph Parker where she wanted him. Though there's occasional voice in the embassy saying, um, you know, this is just gossip. This is all just gossip. She is well connected. The embassy would do well to listen to what she's got to say because she really knows what's going on. But that was very much um, uh, drowned out by, the, by uh, the more conventional voices that she was a disruptive element in the press corps. Let's go back to Nadia, who reappears <laughs> in our story. Uh, and she has had, shall we say, an adventurous life in service of the party up to this time. That, uh, yes. Her, her biography is probably worth a book or two on its own. Uh, and even what um, little of her biography is in my book, The Red Hotel, uh, it's a sort of primer on on um, the early years of the of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, after the Civil War, where she and Alex, her husband, um, had had worked together, um, he he surprised her by saying he was not going to join the Communist Party. Um, he was a man of principle. Of incredibly charismatic, uh, a very good, uh, a very good, good linguist, and had buckets of buckets of charm. Um, he had been with the Red Army um, uh, for the last, uh, the last stand of the whites. That is the, uh, the the ones who were trying to revive the empire. The last stand of the White Army in Crimea. Um, all the whites um, eventually had to. Uh, uh, had to surrender, and the Red Army massacred about thirty to forty thousand of them. Now Alex said, "I am never going to join a party which is so barbaric." You know, these people had lost. Um, you know, uh, they were no threat to anyone, um, and so he didn't find a career for himself in Moscow, but uh, he found ways to work abroad. So. Uh, he and Nadia um, first set off um, with, uh, with packets of gold coins and jewels um, secreted about their person um, to Germany to foment revolution. It was, a, it was, uh, uh, it was uh, fundamental to, to Marxist thinking that the revolution had to spread around the world. Indeed, uh, Lenin and I think others thought that uh, you couldn't have 
communism in one country because the capitalists would always try and throttle it. Therefore, the revolution had to spread and Germany seemed uh, a likely place. Um, uh, they, didn't, they didn't do very well. It was one, they, um, uh, the, they ended up having instructions to, uh, uh, to recruit some elderly white generals. Um, uh, Alex said, this is a waste of time. He came back. Um, um, but that wasn't the end of his career. Um, he was posted to work for Soviet military intelligence with, with Nadia in Shanghai, one of the most important jobs at the time because the, ja the Japanese were uh, a rising power, um, a danger both to the Russians and of course to America. So Shanghai was very important. Um, for compli uh, complicated reasons that didn't last very long, um, and then they were sent to New York, um, also for Russian military intelligence. Their job was to steal technological secrets, uh, particularly military. Um, Stalin had been buying a lot of technology from America um, with uh, real money, but uh, he also wanted uh, the, the secret stuff, which wasn't for sale. So with the use of uh, American communists, uh, they would um, uh, get blueprints and things from, na from naval yards, aircraft factories. That was their job. And uh, Nadia would ensure that it was uh, photographed, uh, secreted uh, you, uh, the mic in microfilm, usually in little mirrors bought from the five and dime store and then shipped back to, uh, back to the Soviet Union. And that's how she was case officer for Whitaker Chambers. Yes, <laughs> one, <laughs> of the, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first people they recruited. The, the Communist, Party, um, Communist Party of America um, had uh, a clandestine arm. Uh, those were the, the people who were actually working uh, uh, as assets uh, of, of, of Soviet intelligence. And the first of these that was recruited by the Ulanovsky was Whitaker Chambers, who was a most unlikely person. Um, uh, the people generally they worked with uh, uh, led, uh, had very um, uh, um, normal lives. They would be carpenters, plumbers, dentists, and things like that. They all looked like upstanding members of the community and would never be suspected of being communists. Whitaker Chambers was a shambolic, uh, a shambolic in intellectual, uh, never seemed to, or if he wore a, rumple, a suit, it was always rumpled. Um, uh, he had a, a, a mouth full of rotten, rotten teeth and he lived in the middle of nowhere in New Jersey um, for, for reasons which no one could quite contemplate. Anyway, but he was also a well-known well communist. He'd edited um, a, a communist journal. Anyway, uh, the Ulanovskis took a shine to him. Uh, he was a very engaging person. And um, Nadia and he would go round to naval yards and uh, round um, uh, factories to, to pick up, uh, to pick up um, stolen plans. The idea being a man and a woman is less suspicious than a man on its own. So they would pretend to, pretend to be man and wife. Of course, Whitaker Chambers became famous uh, after the war for 
blowing into the open the the full extent of the um, uh, of the Soviet penetration, uh, not only of um, of the uh, technological sphere, but right at the heart of government, particularly the Roosevelt, the Roosevelt government, which led to the Reds under the bed scare, which lasted into the lasted into the fifties. Anyway, so. Um, uh, perhaps recruiting Whitaker Chambers was not their finest moment. Anyway, after that, um, they came back to, to Moscow and uh, discovered, well, they knew that the purges had taken place. Stalin had, had, uh, had, had arrested uh, hundreds of thousands of people sent to the Gulag, were just shot in the back of the head, including some of the people that they knew very well. Um, so Nadia's faith in Stalinism sort of evaporated. And in fact, uh, after a rather tense conversation with her husband, they decided that it wasn't Stalin was the problem. It wasn't that Lenin had died too long. It was the fact that the Bolsheviks, a party with very little popular support in Russia, had managed to seize power in, 19, in 1917 and could only keep power with the most means. Anyway, she kept quiet about that. Um, and when 1941 came around, uh, no, one, <laughs> no one had made any plans at all for having lots of journalists or what, what, uh, uh, or even how to, how to defend Moscow. Uh, so she was, she was summoned by Sol Solomon Blazowski, um, actually a, a friend of, of the family who was the spokesman and said, right, um, you speak good English, you speak American English, um, you're a reliable person, you know how, how the press works, you know how things work in that work abroad, um, uh, you're going to uh, interpret and guide um, the American and, uh, American and British reporters translate for them. She said, I'd rather not do that. And um, he said, it's wartime, off you go. So um, she was uh, approved. She went to see someone from the secret police and uh, started interpreting for American, American journalists. The first one was f a correspondent for the Chicago News, I think, not the Tribune, the Chicago News. Um, which she and did she, very diligently. So, carry yeah, on. So she ends up, I want to get to the sort of her sin. She ends up becoming an interpreter for an Australian journalist, Godfrey Blunden. Yes. And, and, and there, I mean, and there she sins. I mean, this is what gets her sent to the camps. So, yes. what yes. does she do? I mean, it sounds what? so innocuous. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> innocuous anywhere other than in Stalin's, in Stalin's Russia. Well, um, um, at the end of 1941, the Germans were literally uh, could see the Kremlin towers if it wasn't too foggy from their from their front lines. Uh, so everyone was pretty damn scared, and um, she put her she put her shoulder to, shoulder to the wheel and uh, uh, and um, interpreted and. Um, um, presented Stalin in the best possible light. Obviously, um, he'd got rid of everybody else. There was no alternatives to Stalin. So uh, whatever you thought about him, uh, he was the one and only person who was going to save the Soviet Union if anyone was going to. 
Um, as the Germans were pushed back, um, sort of normal service was restored. Uh, she found it very hard to tolerate the uh, the lies and propaganda that the journalists were be, were being told, um, and they, uh, there was a, an incident in a car when they'd been to see uh, a village which had been uh, a small village liberated from the Germans, uh, and uh, instead of being able to talk to the residents, the journalists were given were given a, were given a feast. Uh, um, uh, complete with white tablecloths and, and samovars and things like that. They all felt, they all felt ashamed and misused. That um, somehow or other, you know, uh, they were t told that this this feast was put on by a peasant woman when obviously it had been brought straight from Moscow. And in the back of the car, the journalists all all complained about how they were they were being duped and manipulated. Uh, and she thought, gosh. I should be telling them the opposite, but I can't. Um, and then she became, then the sort of um, the co cognitive dissonance got worse and worse. Um, and she was looking for a journalist she, who, who she could trust with the truth. Um, she had no time for the British. She thought they were all snobs. She was enough of a revolutionary to think that. And she particularly hated some of the British correspondents um, who came from private education but claimed to be on the side of the workers. Um, that was too much for her. As for the Americans, she understood how, how, um, how uh, ambitious they were and she thought, whatever I say is going to end up in the pages of the New York Times if I'm not careful. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, she trusted an Australian um, who told her that Australians were decent guys on the side of the underdog and that kind of stuff. He was called Godfrey Blunden. Uh, he was he was very ambitious. He wanted to make his make uh, a career in Europe and America as a writer, not just as a uh, a humble hack filling newspaper columns. Anyway, um, they hit it off, and um, Alex had been wounded in the war, so he was living with her. In the in the in the hotel, uh, and um, so he regaled her with all his stories of the uh, of the of the civil war. Um, whenever after all these talks, Blunden would write would write it all down in a in a tiny tiny hand in a very small notebook, uh, which he managed to keep in his pocket and was perhaps illegible to anybody else. And um, uh, so he had a he ended up with a pretty pretty good view of uh, of what had happened in the civil war, how Stalin had risen risen to power, um, how he'd got rid of every every uh, real or imaginary rival in the in in the 30s, um, how he had grossly mismanaged the conduct of the war at, at the beginning. Um, so Blunden had all of this, which of course he couldn't write it. He couldn't get it past the, um, past the, past the censor. And before he left, he said, Nadia, you've done so much for me. I've got one more question. He said, could you take me to the home of a Soviet family to see how they live? Now, this was, this was almost impossible to, 
to achieve because there was a terrible shortage of accommodation. People lived maybe six, seven, eight to a room and sort of 30 people sharing one bathroom and one, one kitchen. So um, the foreign ministry, which organized these visits, just didn't let it happen. Or if, or if it did happen after six months of waiting, um, the journalist would find out that um, the, the 30 other people that lived in the apartment had disappeared for the day and it seemed to be, um, seemed to be very spacious. Anyway, so Nadia said, okay, I'll do that. And um, one evening uh, at night, they met outside and took the, took the metro. Um, he dressed in uh, old clothes and um, she took, took them to see a couple of old ladies who lived uh, in a building on a main road. And um, they were both uh, what, you would, what were known as former people. They came from bourgeois origins and they both lost their, their husbands had been shot in, in the 30s, either, either for being bourgeois or for having connections with Poland or some other spurious thing. Anyway, um, the place was tiny. Um, they, were, they only had one bed, which uh, which they had to share. But it was clear from the way they served um, the food, which Nadia had actually brought the previous day, since they didn't have much to eat, um, that they were uh, they'd been used to living well. Anyway, so after this was quite a very affecting thing for for Blunden, and of course um, uh, he never forgot it. And as they were as they were leaving. Nadia said to him, you know, uh, you could harm a lot of people if you mentioned this. He said, don't worry, I'll put it in a novel. Uh, and so he left and um, eventually the novel appeared. It was called A Room on the Route, R-O-U-T-E. Uh, and it, the, the route was the most famous one in Moscow, which was uh, the road between the Kremlin and Stalin's dacha, where he he basically spent his life between those two those two places, um, uh, and everyone everyone knew that the road would be closed from time to time, and there would be no other cars, and he was his cortege would zoom would zoom along it. Anyway, uh, and of course these two old ladies their their apartment sorry their room had a window on this route, so uh, the novel turned out to be. An, ex, an expose of the underside of Soviet of Soviet life, wrapped up in a thriller, uh, and, and under which a a, a uh, the son of one of the lady uh, the old ladies um, brings a gun from the war and tries to shoot Stalin on his way home, but not not succeeding. Um, well, uh, it made a big splash because nothing nothing. Uh, revealing so much about the reality of life had really been published before. Um, well, I suppose um, George Orwell had written things, um, but from someone who had been a journalist there and seemed to have it from the horse's mouth, George Orwell, of course, never went anywhere near Russia. Um, it made a big splash. Um, it was given um, one of the most damning reviews in the New York Times that I think I've ever read. <laughs> Um, New York Times, I think, still wanted to believe that um, there could be pass, there could be um, the wartime alliance could continue after the war. Anyway, um, it didn't take the secret police very long 
to work out who the two ladies were. Um, anyone who had a who lived on that route uh, was was watched. Um, obviously, Nadia was responsible uh, for taking him. So the two old ladies were arrested. Um, one was persuaded to uh, denounce the other, which is the normal way, and the the um, that one disappeared into the gulag. Uh, Nadia was arrested. She spent three years in pre-trial detention in the Lubyanka and Lofortova, which is where uh, the American journalist Evan Gershkovich is being held even now. And she never, she never admitted to revealing any, any secrets. Um, she did under torture and having been deprived of sleep for sort of two weeks at a time, she did admit to having having thoughts uh, about Stalin, but she said she never she never revealed them. Anyway, despite the um, the charge sheet being pretty empty, uh, she was given fifteen years in the Gulag, um, uh, where and she was sent up to the Arctic Circle to Vorkuta, a mining town, um, where she somehow managed to sort of manage to survive. Um, uh, though of course she aged terribly. After after Stalin died, uh, the new in 1953, the new rulers um, wanted to get rid of as many gu uh, gulags as possible. Um, it was all going to be all going to be fresh. And if you uh, if you signed a paper saying I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what I did, they would let you go. She refused to do that. She said, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, so the, the, her particular camp was being emptied all around her. So um, they said, okay, well, we'll, um, we'll uh, change your sentence. She, you've done eight years. Well, let's say, well, let's change your sentence from 15 to eight so you can go home without having admitted, admitted um, any, any guilt. Um, they returned, she and her husband returned, returned to Moscow. Um, but having spent all those years uh, in these terrible conditions, um, she sort of felt um, strong enough to resist. Some of the people, some people liberated from the, from the gulag became toadies, but she wasn't. She became, she became a dissident. She translated uh, Arthur Kerstler's Darkness at Noon um, and and other books, um, the um, one of the the dissident newsletters, the very famous chronicle of current events, was actually typed up uh, in her apartment uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, the person who did the typing, and of course, as it was, as there were no photocopies in those days, um, they would do about five copies with carbon paper. If people remember what carbon paper is, so. Uh, whoever typed it up would hit the keys pretty hard. And the person doing the typing, who was uh, quite a famous dissident, she would think, what will the, the neighbors are going to denounce me? And she went bang, 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 uh, doing, doing this newsletter. But Nadia, um, having been through all the gulag, um, slept like a baby. <laughs> anyway, um, when the 70s came, uh, the, um, it was possible for people of, of Jewish heritage 
to go to Israel. Um, this was done under under American American pressure, and the family decided to take up the offer. Nadia had lost her religion. She was a, a, a genuine atheist, though she was a, a obviously her her culture culture was Jewish. Anyway, for the sake of their of the grandson, uh, they moved to they moved to Israel. She never wrote her she never wrote her stories. She never wrote it, but um, her recollections were recorded by her daughter, uh, who um, then um, edited them, edited them slightly. And she did go and see Blunden in later life. Uh, her daughter took her. Her daughter, I think, was looking was looking for um, for a showdown. Basically, wanted Blunden to admit that he'd done wrong. Uh, Strangely, London was silent uh, in his house on the French Riviera. He'd had a very successful career after Moscow. He had a, retired to a house on the French Riviera. He, did, he was completely silent. His wife bustled around making tea and things like that and uh, filling, the, filling the empty, um, empty passages, uh, empty conversations where people, he should be talking. But he, he didn't want to say anything at all. Um, Nadia was quite forgiving of him. Um, maybe sometimes that happens with people who've suffered quite a lot. They think, what's the point? Why, um, why should we do that anyway? Um, she was quite forgiving. Her daughter, not so much. Anyway, that's Nadia's story. The, one of the extraordinary things in the, in, in the book is... Uh, this whole operation closes down. The correspondents return home. And in the end, it's the British embassy who has to explain to the world that for the previous four years, these journalists have been uh, spoon-fed information. Uh, that they've been, under, they've been under a certain level of control. Let's put it that way. Yes. Um, it's the journalists don't do that. Um, and I, I guess for very understandable reasons, you wouldn't want to admit that you that that you had endured that or you had put up with that. Um, yes, um, uh, obviously the um, the British Embassy and the Foreign Office knew that the journalists were being were were under strict control. This was uh, from uh, you know for most for most of the war, this was just something they had to they had to 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 tolerate but it became clear um, as the as the red army was heading to was about to take to take berlin that um, the uh, british newspaper reader had got a very different view of stalinism uh, than the real than the reality and that uh, the wartime alliance wasn't going to last and um, basically the uh, the the ambassador, who was uh, Archibald Clark, uh, um, concluded that um, having a British a British correspondent in Moscow uh, would not only be a waste of a newspaper's time, but it was actually um, harmful to uh, to British interests because they would always be um, uh, uh, touting um, a hostile line. Um, the uh, the, the the government had expected the diplomats, once freed from uh, their shackles, to reveal all. None of them did. 
with the exception of um, someone who worked for the BBC called Paul Winter, Paul Winterton. Um, and he wrote an expose for his newspaper, the News Chronicle. They refused to run it. <laughs> he went around the whole of Fleet Street, which is where uh, they refused to run it. Um, eventually, the only outlet who showed any interest was a, uh, was called uh, World Press News, a trade journal not read by anyone except journalists. And they didn't allow him to write anything, but they did do um, uh, an, an, an interview with him where um, uh, basically, you know, a little bit sort of a, a small element of what he wanted to say was, was allowed. Um, uh, and that was it. But I did find in the, in the archives of the proprietor of the, of the newspaper an angry letter from a woman uh, who said, I'm not a journalist, I'm not an important person, but I did happen to see a copy of World Press News. And I'm shocked to see that Mr. Winterton had, had been telling lies to us <laughs> all th throughout, throughout the war. Um, surely this should have been in your paper and not hidden away in a trade publication which no one reads. I shall never believe anything written from Moscow again. Anyway, that letter to the proprietor was never published, of course. Anyway, so... Before, before we conclude, I, I want to... Um ask you to describe some of the, the threads that bind you to this story. It turns out you visited the Hotel Metropole uh, when you were 14, but uh, there's right. also an, uh, a woman we haven't met, mentioned, uh, Tanya Svetlova, um, That's who also connects you uh, right into the heart of this story. Yes. Um, it's a long story, Al. Anyway, yes, yeah, it is. my mother did... I did... I did go uh, on a package tour to Moscow when I was 14, when I was just beginning to learn Russian. Uh, my, my mother was a great Russophile. She'd been born in North China um, uh, to a family of, of sort of minor, minor traders up there. Um, and um, she'd been brought up originally by a, 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 a Chinese nanny and her parents were shocked. My her parents, my grand, uh, my grandparents were shocked to hear her gabbling away very fluently in Chinese in Mandarin. Uh, that was terrible in those days. Of course, these days that's what would you want. So the poor Arma was sent away, much to my mother's distress, and replaced by a Russian governess. Uh, of course, Shanghai was full of Russian exiles, and Russian governesses, of course, were employed to speak French to their charges. So she learned very good French, but also she Im sort of imbibed um, all the Russian fairy tales, you know, the witch Baba Yaga and the house on chicken's feet. So she had a very, she was quite a, quite a Russophile. And we did, we did arrive and we did stay um, in, the, in, in the Metropole, which we were told on arrival was the best, though uh, as far as I remember, the door handles fell off. The food was inevitable, except for the potato salad, which was, you could always always rely on. And there always seemed to be some sort of small riot going on in the foyer when some tourists arrived, and they were told that their 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 the reservations had been had been lost. Anyway, so if that was the best, I wondered about the others. Um, but anyway, but the real genesis of this story is when I was working for Reuters. I'd been trainee in Moscow in 
in 1979 80 and uh, in the early 80s I, w I was in I was sent as correspondent to Tunis not a great center of news there was a rather small press corps of the most interesting person was a woman called Tanya Matthews uh, she'd been born in Russia she was her maiden name was Tanya Svitlova and uh, she had learned English with American oil men in her hometown of Grozny famous for the Chechen wars in the in the 90s but it was the center of the oil industry and there were lots of American oil men um, building a refinery there uh, and she'd always uh, wanted to emigrate particularly to to America because she was had what was called a spoilt biography her grandfather had been a priest uh, and her parents were middle class so she was barred any kind of further education because of her origins. She wanted to go on the stage. Uh, she was very uh, glamorous uh, young woman. Anyway, um, uh, in Moscow teaching English, uh, she heard about um, the journalists needing translators and she wangled a job with a British journalist called Ronnie Matthews. And um, uh, he proposed he proposed marriage to her within within a week. Um, she was pretty irresistible. When I knew her, she was about three times my age, but still very energetic, playing a mean game game of golf, and um, able to report things rather fearlessly, uh, which others other story which other journalists feared to feared to touch. Anyway, so in her house on in Sudi Busaid. Uh, we used to have very nice lunches and she would talk about life in the metropole and um, getting married and trying to buy a wedding dress when there was literally nothing to buy in the shops um, and how she'd managed to uh, break all the rules which forbade uh, Russian women to leave the country after they'd married foreigners. Um, she was a woman you couldn't say no to. Anyway, so I thought, well, that's interesting, but... Um, uh, it was at the back of my mind for a number of years. Uh, and when I was in Moscow uh, later, I told people about my interest in the Metropole. And someone said, oh, well, here's a book for you. And it was a history of the Metropole Hotel, uh, newly published in Russian. And um, I turned to the Second World War chapter, and there was quite a lot more detail. And I found out about Nadia. Uh, and uh, various other stories of the Metropole. And um, so I set about doing some proper research and um, eventually it came to light. So you finished writing this book against the background of the, well, I guess we'll, we'll think of it as the second phase of the Russian war in Ukraine. Yes. Um, and you have lots, uh, it must inspire lots of thoughts uh, about the control of well, it, well, of well, it did, yes. Um, well, when I started writing it, I thought it would be a period piece of, uh, of interest to uh, some journalists, some historians. But um, by the time by the time I'd finished, I I realized that there was a uh, so many so many parallels between between Stalin Stalin and Putin uh, that um, I sort of couldn't let it go. So it became um, accidentally more more topical. Uh, obviously, um, Stalin uh, Putin can't 
follow Stalin absolutely because uh, the times have changed, but he did in the course of his 20 years in power uh, gain almost total control either by the state or by friendly oligarchs of the broadcast um, and, uh, and, printed, and printed media. So when, his, when he launched his war, um, it was, took a, literally a couple of days um, for the remaining uh, free media to be closed down or, or, or driven away. Um, uh, of course, um, Stalin achieved what Putin wants to do. Stalin expanded the frontiers of the Soviet Union um, which had become uh, rather shrunken in 1918. He expanded the frontiers to those of the Russian Empire and beyond. And that's what Putin, that's what Putin wants to do. He says uh, uh, the, the loss of the loss in inverted commas of, of Ukraine is an existential threat to Russia's survival. This is quite difficult to get your head around, given the fact, given the fact that Russia has more territory than any other country in the world. But um, it is it is an article of uh, of, Put of Putin's faith that uh, Ukraine uh, cannot cannot ever uh, be uh, independent. And if it is independent, it is only because hostile forces, the West, NATO, Poland, or Germany. Uh, wanted to be wanted to want to destroy uh, Russia. Of course, he, uh, <laughs> um, Putin doesn't use a smartphone. I don't think he uses the internet. So uh, uh, the media environment is unrecognizable from the 1940s, uh, and we see that every day. Even even the. Um, uh, the bloggers, the military bloggers, who are supposed to be 100% behind his special operation in Ukraine, are becoming more and more critical. Um, Stalin would never have allowed that. My guest today has been Alan Phillips. He is the author of Red Hotel, Moscow 1941, The Metropole Hotel, and The Untold Story of Stalin's Propaganda War. Alan Phillips, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 